Oh, man. That was maybe the grandest opening I've ever done. Your countdowns are getting more precise every single time we do uh, this. Yeah, and they can't even hear it. <laughs> they're missing I know out. They can't. You don't know the magic. You don't know the magic that goes on yeah, behind the scenes. Yeah, they're so missing out. Huh. I know. I, it always reminds me of that scene in Wayne's World where they're they're no longer at public access and they've got a little bit of money and they and the guy is doing the countdown but he doesn't do the two and the one. Um, you yes. Just are, it, that, I think for some reason I sometimes I think you're just not going to say the numbers and I'm like oh, I hope he says the numbers or else I'm not going to. Yeah, I say them just for your sake. But if I was Thank being you. more professional, I would not say them. But no, no, we also don't have a clapper. Or no, like but you know, this is the Cinema Discovery Project. And um, it is. We can do what the hell we want because it's ours. And uh, we are true. back again this week, and we are now back around to our next spotlight, where we yes, talk we about are. a classic film. Uh, sometimes, you know, maybe we should do a shitty film one day. I don't know. We should. Um, or perhaps a a guilty pleasure or something like yeah. that. You know, we 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 need to. We, you know, we, I think for the most part, we've been doing. Uh, you know, great films, uh, what we consider to be right. great films. And, of course, yes. this one I think might be one of our greatest. I would say so. It's definitely, uh, I would say, one of the best films we're going to be covering so far because it's also done by one of the greatest filmmakers I think we have going to be covering yes. so far, at least in I, my I would opinion. say so, yeah. yeah. Um, but uh, in this episode, we're going to be going over Akira Kurosawa's 1963 film, High and Low, starring, of course, Toshiro Mifune, as well as um, uh, Tatsun, uh, Natsu- uh, one of Steven's uh, yeah, favorites. Yeah, Tatsun Nakade, is that it? Uh, yeah, Nakade, yeah. yeah. Who um, many of you maybe, maybe don't know is in the film Harakiri, which is an amazing film that I think every... That's that's something we ought to do a spotlight yeah, on eventually. Yeah, I love that movie. Because that movie's amazing. And it was a movie that I had um, suggested to Stephen like way yeah. back when we, started, when we first started Came talking about movies yeah. and stuff. And yeah, that film is directed by um, uh, Masaki Kobayashi, who's done a, done a few films as well. But I think Harakiri is probably his most well-known and best. Uh, coincidentally, both of these films are in the Criterion Collection, as pretty much every Akira Kurosawa film is, I hey, think. A good amount of them. Uh, yeah. By this point. I mean, I'd have to run the numbers on that. He did thirty. He did thirty confident. films. Uh, I would. I'd 30. say. Good, I would yes. say between uh, the Criterion editions and the Clips editions, um, probably mm-hmm. probably a good eighty five percent of his movies are in the. Yeah, I don't want to get off on like a huge tangent, but there are several of his films that haven't been put out yet by Criterion. I think they own the rights to. I think it's like like Dersu Uzala and. And some other stuff from like the seventies and whatnot. I don't think have been quite released yet, but a good chunk of his filmography has. And like we said, thirty films may sound a lot, but not really if you consider that he was doing films all the way from the forties up until the nineties. Yeah, nineties. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that's a good chunk of time, and he only did thirty films. But I don't think we need to delve too much into Akira Kurosawa. Because we're probably going to talk about him a lot throughout the D- Cinema Discovery Project, but he's considered one of the greatest filmmakers of all time by many, many people and for many, many reasons. Yeah. Probably too many to go into now without taking up so much time. All you have to know is just look at his filmography and you'll see... Countless great films at, after great films. Countless yeah. great films. Seven Samurai, Rashomon, 
et cetera, et cetera. Um, you know, Sanjuro, Yojimbo. I mean, t- t- tend to um, his work uh, is what inspired some of pop culture, especially Star Wars. Right. Yeah. Um, um, Hidden Fortress is the basis for Star yeah. Wars. So that whole generation that we've talked about many, many times, you know, the the new Hollywood generation, which we did a whole episode on, so check that out if you haven't seen it yet or listened to it yet. Um, all Many of those people were inspired by Akira Kurosawa, and they rightfully say, yeah, we watched yeah. those films and we love those films. Those were our inspiration in making our own films. And you see that throughout the generations. And Akira Kurosawa is still an influence today. But High and Low is a bit of a departure from some of the films we mentioned. He, Like you said, it's not a... a a Seven Samurai, it's not a Rashomon, it's, it's more, not uh, Yojimbo yeah. Sanjuro. It's it's what, I guess you could say, a traumatic thriller uh, or a suspense drama or something Yeah, like I, mean, it, I mean, it's also, you know, for the time when it came out, it was more um, uh, modern, you know, for, for its time. You know, like, it, you know, he, right. he he's known for doing a lot of period pieces, you know. Um, yeah, um, Feudal Japan, yeah. which is where a lot of his samurai films were set. And those films have a very Western feel to them. They could feel like Japanese Oh, yeah. Westerns. A lot, once again, a lot of his movies inspired Westerns. You know, The Seven Samurais. Yeah, then... or he was inspired by Westerns. So yeah. it's like they go hand yeah. in hand. But this is a bit of a different film. It's a crime procedural. It's a... It's yeah, a... it's a crime thriller. Yeah. You know, um, also, you know, a moral tale at its heart. You know, it's, you know... Yeah, the, there was a lot of political stuff in here that I wasn't aware of watching it for the uh when i watched it the first time i've since seen it three times now and the political um um themes in it were definitely more pronounced yeah. this time uh, and they feel very contemporary as well which is which is kind of great to see because you know these films never get dated if they feel contemporary but this film was also based on a 1959 novel called king's ransom by ed McBain. so it's a loosely uh, loose adaptation sure. But of course, you know, many of its aspects are changed, as most adaptations are. Um, But without further ado, Stephen, do you want to get, you want to just dive right into the plot? Let's do it. And as usual, uh, we will spoil this movie. So if you have not seen High and Low, I I think if you don't, if you don't own it, you can, hopefully maybe you have the Criterion channel and you can, it's probably on there to stream. Um, but there's ways to get this movie. Definitely, you can rent it. You can right. so. But it's 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 though it is a two hour and I think twenty three minute movie. Um, it it yes. actually moves pretty 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 good. Um, it does. It moves surprisingly yeah. well for a movie of that length and for a movie that really gets into it when it comes to uh, police investigation and just going like beat by beat and stuff like that. But we'll get into that. But first it starts off, um, the first, I would say 53 minutes to an hour of this film is all within like one location. Yes. And it's all set within the, the house of Tashiro Mifune's character in his family. His name is King Gondo, Kingo Gondo. And it opens up, with him talking with a bunch of men, like sitting on couches and stuff, and what we come to know is that they are all part of this uh, national shoe company, this big time shoe company. And what we learn is that they're all kind of relatively, you know, like um, corporate people within. They're like that the shoe they're like the like members of the board. Members, of you know, the board. that own shares of the company. Um, yeah. They do, 
And what they're trying to do is they're trying to convince uh, Toshiro Mifune's character, Gondo, I'll just call him Gondo, sure. that's how they refer to him, and he, of of going in with them in terms of uh, putting his sh- his percentage of shares in so that they can then, like, overthrow the guy who runs the company and then they will have control. Yeah. The thing is, is what they want to do when, term- when in terms of changing the company is they want to make cheaper shoes. They want to find a way and, to and make more quality. money by yeah. making a, a worse product uh, is kind of, is what they see as the future. Yeah, basically they want to make products that aren't durable, won't last, so that people will buy more. Of sure. Well, specifically, women. They they have this model shoe that they that they show Gondo, and um, he is not having it. He is not. He does it's... not want any part of it because he's he's kind of a, he's a man of principles that we'll see throughout the movie. But you see it right away that this guy is. Like a yeah, rock. this. You know what I mean? Like he's very. Yeah, this opening stern. scene it gives you an idea of the kind of guy he is, or at least gives you a kind of guy he 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 would like to be, or he likes to say that he is is a man of principles that um would stick to his guns, would do the right thing because he he thinks that the right thing is is to make sure that the customers have a good product, and whether yeah. whether or not it makes them the most money, at least they have their reputation, you know? Um, and so he, but of yeah, course, so he, so he, you don't know this yet, but he has ulterior motives too. He's, he does. But before that, he ring, he reams these, these executive guys rips up the shoe in front of them and says like, this insole is like cardboard. This is awful. He just like tears it apart in his hands because show how flimsy the shoe is. And it just shows that, uh, you know, it's getting into this idea of corporate greed. Yeah getting into this idea of like economic greed it, and just how these companies are just for profit they don't give a they don't care about making a quality product as long as it's sells it kind of well. reminded me that That's, whole situation kind of reminds me of when it came out about apple and how they were like mm-hmm. letting their they had like something set up to where their devices would eventually like fall apart oh yeah yeah they have like lifespan yeah basically and then the battery wouldn't work anymore and then it would make you have to buy new products yeah, yeah, that's it's, I, yet again yeah. something that makes this movie very yeah. contemporary. I mean, it's something a lot yeah, of businesses, I'm sure, do. Yeah, corporations are still trying to make money. No big yeah. shocker there. But he so they, so they storm out. They storm out in a huff. He does um, have his right his hand man. Come, his right hand man, he does. Um, who's his like apprentice? Yeah. Who's in line for a promotion? And that's gonna play in a little bit soon. Um, but he's in line for a promotion as one of the directors, but he's escorting them out. And the wife comes down the stairs. He's like, oh, she's like, oh, leaving already. And they're like, oh, yeah, yeah, whatever. <laughs> they just play it off and they just, they just leave. And, but outside is they talk to his right hand man and they're like, you know, you know, what's it? They, they kind of like say, basically um, they try to get him to they help They kind him. of bribe him. They try yeah, to bribe yeah. him basically yeah. into into giving up information about what his his boss is doing, like the what what's his plan, what's yeah. his deal essentially, and before we get any type of reveal there, uh, it cuts back um, to in to inside, and this is where we I think believe this is where we first are introduced to um, the yes. children. The children are playing like well, pa- um, playing cowboys, uh, cowboys and robbers. 
Yeah, like cowboy, like sheriff. Yeah, and yeah, you know, cop like and that. robbers. So they yeah. got like they have like the the hat on, the plastic toy guns. They're chasing each other. What we learn is that one of the children is uh, June, who is the the son of um, Tashira Mafune's character and his wife, uh, Gondo and his wife. And then the other one is the uh, we learn we learn a little bit later on that it's the son of the chauffeur. Yeah. I think his name is Shinichi. And so they're playing around and the, and whatnot, but they decide that they're going to uh, switch places. Yeah. And I think that what the son's by, playing it, the cop, and yeah, yeah, and then the the other kids playing, which you know, of course, with the themes of this this movie, very much kind of play out as you know, because the movie, the name of this movie, High and Low, you know, is very directly talking about the higher class and the lower class. Right. people that's where it gets very and, and you know also of course on. with the kid you know the cops and the robbers you know the cops are the higher right. class you know so then they switch places and the, the the lower class kid gets to be the cop and then you know we go from there right but but when they run off screen because yeah. like i said this whole opening hour or so takes place in this one roomed area what i learned about while watching the movie, and then there's a great like 37 minute making of documentary on the Criterion, where all of the stuff you saw in the movie was all done on sets, and which is kind of mind blowing to me, just because it doesn't feel like a set, but I guess it really, really worked. Like the like they had three different sets for the house. They had like the exterior shots of the house was a different was a different set. Interior of the house was a different set, and then another room in the house was a different set. In all, in three different places, very fascinating filmmaking. Uh, yeah, they get into all kind of like, like the angles and the way Kurosawa would set up the cameras and the lighting and all this kind of stuff. Amazing technical filmmaker of Kurosawa. This guy knew exactly how to um, put people in a frame, knew exactly mise en scène and stuff like that. And you see the way characters are framed within this first hour because there's so many people that come and go within this one space in so much time. He knows how to, but, he knows how, to me, I yeah. think he's the best I've seen of somebody that can get the most out of one shot. Um, where yes. if there's people talking, one guy could be in the foreground talking and list or listening. And then this guy's over here on the left side, he finds a way to get as much out of that one shot and it won't be boring. Like, yeah. And it's all usually all yeah. one shot. And he's, it's, it's yeah, he, a lot of masterful shots like that well in Seven Samurai. He just does it all the time. I'm just like, Jesus, like, how does he keep this interesting? And he doesn't even move the camera. <laughs> I know, it's, it's kind of crazy. Uh, but but what happens is, this is when Gondo, like, gives us the reveal of what his grandmaster plan is when it comes to the shoe company. He's telling his wife and his right-hand man that over the last couple of years, he's been buying up percentages of stock uh, here and there, he's been like mortgaging, borrowing money, uh, going into severe debt over just buying enough to to basically own the company himself or own forty seven percent, which would be more than what those other guys had, plus the main boss up top. So he wants to own the company himself, and he wants, of course, to keep it. He wants to keep the quality up as well as adapting to new trends and stuff like that. But of course, that doesn't lead to as much money as that other guy, those other guys' plans are. But that just see that's his model, and that's what he wants to do. And he has to, and he's closing like his last deal now, and he's kind of celebrating 
a little bit before the deal is officially closed. I think he starts like pouring out like champagne or something, and yeah. it's like uh, you may want to hold back a little bit because shit's about to hit the fan. Yeah, but it's one of them things. It's like has nothing to do with the business. Has something completely no. nothing to do with it. <laughs> yeah. No, it, it no. What happens to him doesn't have like it's not like someone's wedging into the business deal. Uh, sort of. We'll get to that in like literally now. But he has to pay like uh fifty. I think it was like fifty million yen. To, to to like to close this deal out, and he's gonna send his assistant with a fifty million dollar check to I think Osaka, and to just uh, just to hand it over, and then yeah. you know he'll be able to, you know, complete his master plan. But before that happens, he gets a phone call, and this phone call says, it says, "Hey, I've got your son. If you want him back, you have to pay me thirty million yen." And the guy and the the person over the phone breaks down like, "I want." You know, non non sequential serial numbers. I want a certain amount of uh, money in this, a certain amount in this this type of bills and that type of bills, all that kind of stuff. And of course, he's like freaking yeah. out. Uh, he's absolutely freaking out. Shoma Fune is is amazing in this movie when it comes to his his reaction and acting in general because he he goes through so many different emotions. He goes like anger and frustration and all kind of stuff, but. In the scene, um, just the way in which Kurosawa frames it, um, because he'll frame, he did like a close-up shot of like all three people in the frame, like the um, the wife is in the frame, and I think his assistant's in the in the frame, and he's got it, he's got the phone up to his ear, and just all three of them one shot, all of them trying to listen to what's on the phone. <clears throat> so he writes all that all the, the specifications down. And he puts the phone down, and of course the wife is freaking out, and he's like, "I'll do. Of course I'm going to do anything to get my son back, and I'll pay it right away, and all this kind of stuff." And it's just, you know, pen. It's like, and then the assistant wants to call the cops, but the the killers, the kidnapper said, "Don't call the cops," and he decide and so what happens I well, guess, as as the, as as this has happened, but you know they're about to as everybody's freaking yeah, out. Everybody's suddenly freaking his out. son walks in the room. <laughs> Oh yeah, and they're all they're all like, "Oh my goodness, must have been a joke." Yeah. Right? Um and then but I think but but during during that or right before the that driver call, shows up. The dri- the chauffeur yeah. walked in and he had I think he had like a code or something for his son and he's and he's like and she was like and then he um and he's just standing there while this is all happening. Kind of freaking out himself, but what happens is of course the son walks in like Steven said and then they're like Okay, where's where's the other yeah. one? And they go running to look, and they can't find him, of course. And lo and behold, what happened is the kidnapper kidnapped the wrong kid because they had switched costumes. Yeah. And now things get now the now the film kind of kicks into a different mode. So now, so now the you know part of the the kind of the central moral conundrum, at least for the first half of the movie, is like now that. Uh, you know, it's not his son that's been taken. Does he still feel he he still feels now? Everybody's pressuring him to still pay the money, <laughs> though it's not his son now. Right, and it's like, <clears throat> and that becomes, I think, the moral imperative right away. Um, and whenever is that initially, he's very resistant. Um, so uh, and. What happens is, 
the the killer the kidnapper does figure out that he got the yeah. wrong kid and he calls back and says i still want the ransom well, so now didn't the cops show up before yeah. yeah the cops show up before yeah. then um they they show up at as like dressed in like delivery like delivery van uniform yeah. uniforms and that's how they sneak in so because they think the house is being watched which we know is. later on which we know yeah. that it obviously is so they show up and that's when we get introduced to um um what's his name's character Nakata's character uh, Tatsuya Nakata's chief detective Takara and he's kind of like the main investigator behind this kidnapping he and Sheriff Mufune kind of work closely together on on this because you know he's the he's the guy in charge of the investigation. So they come in and that's when we get the second phone call. Like I just they said, tap the, they tap still the phone wants it. And... and of course, yeah, they tap the phone and all that kind. Of, they close the blinds and all that kind of stuff. And in this scene, though, when I think this is the scene where. Um, Gondo just tells the kidnapper, no, I'm not going to pay, I'm not going to pay, yeah. it's ridiculous, all this kind of stuff. And in the background, the chauffeur is, you can see it, it's some of the best background physical acting I think I've ever seen. Because there's no, you know, he's not crying or wailing out loud, but his body language is just he's destroyed. He's defeated, yet, and he, he doesn't, he can't, it's like, he. it's one of them things where it's like, he knows he can't, be angry he doesn't know how to feel he just is is helpless completely helpless um to the situation um because he has enormous respect for him but yet he needs his help and he's not willing to help him yeah and just he's slumped and just like crumpled over and just defeated is a good word but he's what's crazy is he's not even defeated he's just he doesn't even like try initially to do anything yeah he's yeah and what is fascinating to me is that throughout the whole endeavor of trying to get this child back the father is almost not involved at all and it it must be extremely frustrating from just that thematic familial standpoint of not being able to you know rescue your own child and having Others basically do it for you. Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, the, all... the person that takes his son doesn't want, hasn't, you know, they don't care anything no about. Yeah, him. I mean, he doesn't have money. <laughs> they don't. Even, he doesn't even talk to the kid, the, the kidnapper on the yeah. phone. Yeah, the only, the only time he, the only time, um, he gets, the only time he really even gets any involvement in that is when he, uh, Gondo wants to hear that the kid is okay, that the kid is alive. And he hears him over the phone and, you know, he says his name and stuff like that. And that's about it. And it's, it's, it's just, it's frustrating. And just like, you see how, how that's killing him literally like physically and probably emotionally. So Gondo says he's not going to pay. And, and basically I think a whole night elapses and the next morning, you know, he still says he's not going to pay because if he pays, it's basically going to ruin him financially and and job wise and career wise and everything because he's he's put so much he's he's put so much stock into uh, all into his plan that if he doesn't go through with this plan, he's going to be financially ruined, and that's it. And it and it's 
you know, again, again, we're we're tap dancing around like what is morally right versus what is personally right, and then like, and as you're watching the film as a viewer, you're probably trying to make that decision yourself. Like, what would you do in his situation? Would you rescue this child who doesn't have any real ties to you whatsoever, other than you know? You could him. say you could you know say I mean? to an extent that the fact that he was the kid was with him at the moment of him being taken, he was partially responsible for him being taken. Right. He was in his home and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And that's what I'm trying to get at is that, like, I mean, a morally upright person would, of course, you know, do it without hesitation. But this person, from what we know from Gondo, is he's very strong-willed well, and, the, and stuff Yeah, like though that. he has certain principles about uh, his business, it doesn't necessarily... Um, make him morally, you know, because th- though he tries to be a good person in that ex- that certain aspect, it takes a certain type of person to get where he is, which is that he has, right. he's very self-involved. But what we've know. also learned, what we also learned in the movie is that he is someone who started off at the very bottom and worked his way up to the yeah. top. So it's not like he was born into yeah. money or and inherited his position at this company or anything like that. He started like on the factory floor and worked his way up to the executive yeah. level. So we've we learned like we learned that about him and apparently he's been in the business for like 30 years. And so that's that's a very interesting aspect as well because he's not necessarily he's perceived as being someone who is on the high. Like literally his house is on top of a hill overlooking it's like some like like you know poor neighborhoods. So he's literally on top of the world, if you will. But he didn't start there. He he worked his way up to there. So it maybe it ingratiates you more towards his character by knowing that, other than than him just being oh another rich person doesn't want to give up his money to save. Well, there's someone. a there's there's a scene also that kind of gets into that a little bit where his wife's mm-hmm. trying to convince him to pay, yes. and you know he tells her you know you've never you know, lived without money. You don't know how it is. You know, you, you're telling me to, to give away all of our money and I know how it is to be poor. You know, you don't. So don't, don't tell me you'll be okay. You know? <laughs> right. I mean, she's trying to convince him to do it. Chauffeur is trying to convince him to do it. And the police are kind of, they're kind like, of staying out of it. <laughs> they're saying that it would be beneficial for you to do it, but they're not saying do it, you know? There's there are often scene like there's a scene where I think this one of the very next scenes is when um, his right hand man comes in and we get the revelation that his right hand man basically sold him out to those executive dudes from the day before for a promotion because he no longer has confidence in Gondo as I guess as a person as a businessman because he hesitated uh, in this moment and it's. Very, very interesting how 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 you would backstab somebody like that who's you know taking you under his wing as an apprentice yeah. and all that kind of stuff, and it just goes to show you that uh, money is a great motivator. Well, just just <laughs> as quickly as he decided to not help this you know get this kid back, that guy decided to turn his back on him when he needed help. You know, there's a parallel there. What is interesting though is he he yeah initially he says like like I've said he's not going to help he's not going to help, and but he's not he's still. Like, there are times where he says, okay, uh, here's the check, go get on that plane, go to Osaka. And he's like, other times, okay, give me that check back, yeah. I'm not going to do it. So he's he's tap dancing back and forth between 
fully, fully like letting the kid go and whatever happens happens and paying the rent. Yeah, because he's under time crunch. It has to get done soon. You know. Right. Both, both do. Well, both they're they're coming to a to collision point. <laughs> I mean, there's a moment where the chauffeur, um, like pleads with him. Uh, to, to It was after to a phone call, another phone call that they get. Yeah, yeah, it was after another phone call where, of course, he, he, he. I think he bought them some time or something like that, um, and he, he wanted, um, yeah. So the chauffeur like kind of just begs him, just says, "I'll, like, I'll basically I'll be your slave for yeah, life. Yeah, you, you won't have this. to pay me. I'll yeah. make my son work for yeah. you too. Um, I mean, I'll, I'll do anything, and." And this is when, and then of course, what's interesting is that the whole the way that whole scene is framed is he's badgering him, and Gondo is up against like the the um, the curtains, and he's like, there's no place for him to go, so he keeps turning his head and his body towards the curtains, and he just can't can't go anywhere. He's like trapped, and it's kind of a physical metaphor for the trap that he's yeah. in right now. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place, and of course, as I was saying, the um, but when his but what really forces his hand, I think, is when his betrayal from his right hand man comes into play, and he tells you know he he's, he slowly he tells um, he tells him about it, and of course Gondo is pissed, and basically kicks him out of his house. But but what but during that he but during that his right hand man just spills the beans to everybody <laughs> like this will lead to your financial ruin. You're going to take me down with you and you owe, you owe money here, there and everywhere and all yeah. this kind of stuff. And the cops, uh, cops are like, they just kind of turn and walk away uh, a little bit as in like, this is an awkward conversation. We got to get out of here. <laughs> and, and it's like, it's kind of when like two people are arguing and you're just standing there and you don't know what to do. So you kind of just like, like look away or lean away yeah. someplace, someplace else. Uh, but this is kind of what really forces his hand. Um, to pay the ransom, and once he decides to pay the ransom, um, the ki- what we what we don't see is that the um, that the kidnapper gives them instru- instructions on how to place the money, and they're going to place these money, this money in these briefcases uh, that are a certain size, and each briefcase holds fifteen million yen. Yeah. But what the cops want to do is they want to put like these little like capsules in them and what happens is if the if the um if the briefcases are um exp- uh, disposed of in any way if they're drowned one of the capsules will release a, like a, a strong smell that's going to alert someone if they're burned they're going to release a pink smoke so that it'll alert them and what happens is they can't really quite figure out how to get the capsules in the briefcase yeah. so gondo's like I'll basically he does it himself he brings out his old tools and stuff, and he's like, "This reminds me of when I was like, you know, making shoes back, back when I was working in the yeah. factory and whatnot." So he he does that he does that for them, and it's he's having to get back down into the low levels to get this done. Really, yeah, it's kind of like bringing like regressing himself back in order to um, get me, you know, like I said, get it done. Um, and what we learn is that, but what is interesting is sometimes during the film. There are things that happen that we don't see. Like I said, that whole like instruction thing when it comes to the briefcases, we don't yeah. see it. It's kind of off screen. Or but but the it really doesn't we don't really get into Kurosawa that stuff does. until the second half of the movie. 
But yeah, but what Kurosawa does is though is that he reveals it to us by the actions of the people. Like we see that they're they're putting money in these briefcases, so we must be so us as viewers must recognize, hey, this kidnapper wants things done a certain way. And that makes sense. You know what I mean? He's not spoon feeding every single piece to us. He's kinda of letting us, you know, put some pieces together our own. And what hap but what also the kidnapper wants that we also don't see on screen is he wants it delivered like uh, via train, yeah, and we get this whole train uh, train sequence where there's, of course, Gondo, and of course, a bunch of the cops are on this train, and the cops are, you know, they're in plain clothes, you know, non conspicuous, and they're just they're kind of seeing if they can catch the person on the train during the trans during the transaction. Thing is, is that what, all the instructions are, are not over when he gets on there. He gets no. a phone call. And then uh, there's further instructions. He, he see the 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 train is only a transport. He has he has to dump the money outside of the train, so there's no way to you know get to him. No, what what the instruction does? He's got to dump the trains out of a window, and the only window that they that opens is like one in a washroom or something. And he's got. And what I learned though is that. The way in which Kurosawa shot this whole train sequence is he shot it all like sequentially. Like he had like a bunch of different cameras set up along this train and he shot everything in like at the same time. It was it was very fascinating to read, um, to, to hear about. And so you so they had to do all kind of like manipulation when it came to the train and all kind of stuff. Just fascinating, fascinating stuff. But what happens is there's that Gondo wants to see the kid before he makes the make makes the dump off. So they they have somebody standing out outside right before a bridge, or yeah, it's either right before a bridge or right after a bridge, and he's gonna dump the money out and then they're gonna release the kid. So he sees the kid, dumps the money out, and but what happens is the cops set up cameras all across the train in order to catch catch the person from every different angle possible. And to just to see if there's anyone else around who looks suspicious, so they have like eight millimeter cameras set up, sixteen millimeter cameras set up, and then we see all these things happen like boom, boom, boom. It's a really like intense sequence, and like I've said, this movie moves just like it's. There's a lot of dialogue, but it just it moves, and there's no like real fat in this movie. Everything pushes the movie forward. Every scene like matters up until this point, of course. So that happens. And they then go out and they get the kid. And this scene always fascinates me. The father isn't there to retrieve yeah. his child. It's Gondo who's there. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> and I found that it just further proves the point we were talking about yeah. earlier. That the father is not involved at all in this, in this, in, in this recovery investigation or anything. He's not even there to pick up his own son. And I don't know how why that decision was made. We never see it. I think it's more just playing into that theme we were just talking about. Yeah, the, him bringing so, himself back down to the lower, you know. Yeah, it's it, it, that, and I just think that you know maybe logistically, if you want to, you know, be realistic about it, you wouldn't want to bring uh, the father of the kid along with on the uh, invest, you know, on this mission. Oh yeah, not not on the train. Not, yeah, on the. But I mean to like. To mean, I mean to pick him up. Afterwards. Sure, maybe, but they didn't know where the pickup point was going to be. I guess that's so. true too. 
I just find that to be interesting, fascinating. So they recovered the kid, but they don't have the kidnapper or anything like that. And this is when the movie shifts. Shifts focus and shifts everything into a crime, like manhunt procedural film, as opposed to like a a ransom movie. And this is where we got a lot of police um, procedural stuff. You know them do them doing and, you know stakeouts and and uh, you know at, you know as you said before they're they're still on the lookout for any signs of the you know the the um, the pink smoke or the you know whatever you know that could that could give them links to to where the money is because that's really their key is, is is to try to track the money you know and and and, and what is also interesting is in like the for the next hour and twenty minutes or so of the movie. Gondo's character kind of uh, falls into the background significantly. We don't see much about him, but we hear a lot about him. What we hear is that he's considered uh, a massive hero by the public. He's, con- you know, he's getting all kind of public backing and all kind of that, and all kind of that, you know, heroic swell and good and and positive feelings and whatnot. But that doesn't mean diddly squat when it comes to his company. Yeah, they they, they don't care. They're they're still going to force him out. Yeah, they still want to force him out, and regardless of you know all the goodwill that he has with the public, and 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 what is interesting is that after that shift, and we get to the more police stuff, the main you know there's really no main character anymore because we've been following Gondo this whole time, and the film kind of shifts to I guess the the uh, Tokura character I would say. Yeah, the t- I would say that uh, you know Tatsuya Nakata kind of becomes the main character because he's the chief, the chief detective and investigator. So we're now we're now following him and his team's investigation of what's going on. Yeah. Kind of one of the first and, things that happens is is they um, they were able they they find these two bodies um, that were overdosed yes. on heroin, and um, they end up being uh, accomplices to to the kidnappings. Yeah, what what they find is they're, they're uh, from the video. We get like this whole big like press conference thing. We get this whole big you know police like like I said procedural thing, and they basically lay out all the facts to us as if we're like as if this is like an episode yeah, of CSI, yeah. and <laughs> well, and they they say like okay we've. We've been able to get the video of this person who dropped the kid off, and we got some eyewitnesses that saw them drive over in a certain area, and we got to see, you know, they get all this kind of eyewitness stuff and investigative stuff, and we've learned, and they and they actually recovered the car that the kid was in that that was used to drive him to to, to the handoff, and they find that it's it's covered in like dust, but also like like pieces like it smells like a fish market, so they go to a fish market and they discover that. That okay, the car definitely drove through here. But they all. But what we also see is that there's a scene where people are listening to the recordings back, and they're just analyzing them like beat for beat, beat for beat, and they hear like a trolley, a trolley noise in the background. So they're like, "Hey, that sounds like a trolley." But the only trolleys in that area are like this one, this one, and this one. Let's see. And then they go to find a um, um, 
like a specialist who knows the different sounds of trolleys. Sure. <laughs> and they, and they like, oh, I didn't know that was a thing. But yeah, and the guy's like, yep, that's that's this one. It goes, Duh. it makes a certain sound. So when they're at the fish market, they're like, hey, where's the trolley? Where's the trolley around here? And the guy goes, oh yeah, it's over there. And then he's like, and then of course the the um, the capture. Now that they have the boy back, they can get information from him, and he paints a picture of what of what he saw while he was kidnapped and all that kind of stuff. And he, and now we get to also a point where the father wants to do something. He wants to feel as if he contributed in some kind of way. So he takes the boy. Well, first, and drives well, first him of all, he gets mad at memory. him because he doesn't know anything. Yes, he does. <laughs> He does get mad at him. He's like overly aggressive towards the boy because the boy like can't really like he does. It's a traumatic experience. Gondo's paid thirty million dollars for you to get free. You better have something. You better have some information. (laughs) And that's not the best thing to do because for a child like that, if you scare them enough, they're just gonna give you false information just because they're scared. And and to be honest, if there was one flaw in this whole thing, is that the kid's not traumatized at all. <laughs> no, no, he's back playing with with uh, June, yeah. and they gotta run off and play together. And I'm like, remember the last time you guys ran off yeah, and played like, together? You got got kind of scarred maybe at all by should... your experience. Yeah, maybe you should like stay a little close. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, don't leave yeah, this room. Really. <laughs> um. So they they decide. Um. Where was I? Oh yeah, they're, they they find the car, and they basically find the hideout of where. The kid was also the way the kid was, and also the two people who uh, were, you know, h- hired. I say hired in quotes by the by the main kidnapper to, um, I guess, keep the kid, or probably kidnap the kid for all we know. Um, and what we learn is that they overdosed from heroin. They're heroin yeah. addicts, and but they were given like ninety percent pure heroin, which caused them to die yeah yeah this and was this we, was and the, this was the main guy trying to close the loops oh yeah he's trying to uh no witnesses yeah. no you know, clo- um no no loose yes. ends as they say and he did that on purpose and we also learned that like um i think that they use like e- they use like industrial grade ether to like i guess douse the kid or whatnot um and so, like, they're trying to put all these pieces together, um, and 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 the and they're so the bodies are found. The cops assume that it was you know somebody else. They have they have um, a letter that was written by the kidnappers to to the main kidnapper, basically saying we want more heroin or else we're gonna use this money because uh, I guess they're yeah they're the ones who did the pickup of the money. So, but the cops tell the press. We're telling you this, but don't, don't, don't print it. Don't say this out into the news or anything like that, because, from what we know right now, the main kidnapper does not know that these people are dead. So we can then use this to lure him yeah. out, and we can, and by doing, by doing so, we can we can catch him. And this is when we get to like a scene where uh, you see the pink smoke, like you mentioned. They're at Gondo's uh, place, and the kids are like, "Hey, come look at this beautiful pink smoke!" Because there's another scene in there where um, they, yeah, it was actually after that where they print like they they allegedly print they print wrong information just to kind of spook them. 
like that they found one of the um one of the bills that was used yeah. and and like they believe and then they believe that it's this and you know God knows getting all this praise we actually see the killer the killer I keep calling him a killer he's, he's not he's, although he is a killer he, he is but <laughs> he is you a know. killer he is a killer but he's the the main kidnapper we see how he lives like we he lives like right in that that slum type neighborhood that poor neighborhood that that sees directly at Gondo's house and there's a great reveal where like these you know these these cops are walking by and they're just commenting about the area and then the the camera moves towards this one person and of course if you're you have a keen eye or anything like that you know that this guy is probably the kidnapper and of course he is but he kind of gets a little spooked so he dumps all the money into like this this hiding place in his house and he's going to get rid of the bags because the bag they made the bags purposely stick out so he sends them to an incinerator and of course you burn them pink smoke comes Damn. up and, and, and yeah, and inter- interesting enough, they actually make the po- in the movie though the movie's black and white, and they made the smoke pink in the movie, which is, which is kind of yeah. cool, kind of cool. So then one of the cops goes over to the uh, I guess the, the incinerator, and this is kind of a funny scene because the guy who runs the incinerator is uh, pretty hilarious. Yes. A little comic relief. <laughs> a little bit of comic relief. He's like, yeah, yeah, people just dump their garbage over here, whatever. There's one scene where he's just picking up a bunch of tin. And he just yells, "Tin doesn't burn!" He just throws it. <laughs> it's so it's hilarious. He's like, "Yeah, everybody comes here. Who? I don't remember anybody." But he's like, "Yeah, it was probably a young person, probably a, an intern at the hospital because it was a young person, not old enough to be a doctor." And he said, "Hey, burn this, pops." And doctors wouldn't say, wouldn't call me pops and stuff like that. So that that kind of leads them towards the hospital and what we do end up finding out is that this person is someone from the hospital we also know that because uh shinichi does draw a picture of the person and he's wearing like a surgical mask he's wearing that and he also has like a bandage on his hand covering up something right yeah so they basically stake out the hospital and that's when they discover who this person is and this is when they kick into another scheme, like we were just talking about, of having to lure him out to commit the same crime again in order to catch him in yeah. the act. So they they make another false note, uh, they deliver it to him, and then they basically track yeah. him. They track him to where he's going to buy more heroin, where he's going to deliver to that hideout, and then they can catch him. But along the way, a sequence of odd things happen, I think. And just the way in which we see him go about buying the heroin, I found to be interesting and fascinating. First, he goes, first he goes to like this. Uh, what, what would you call it, Steve? A dance hall? Uh, yeah, it's like a club. Like you know, he goes to a... a club, and he's actually first he buys. He goes to a florist and buys a carnation, a red carnation. Because that I guess that's the signal to. I guess that's a signal to heroin or drug dealers that hey, I'm trying to buy something, and. Then he goes to that that club, and he dances with this woman, and I, I just don't know if, I just don't know if doing a drug deal in a packed dance hall slash club, handing over heroin is the smoothest way to do it. Ah, uh, you know, uh, I just found that odd. Who knows, man? I, I've never done, I've never done, I've never bought illegal drugs in my life, but I just feel like you want it to be a little more secluded than that. Uh, maybe, maybe, yeah, or maybe you want it to be super crowded. Who knows? 
Yeah, and the way they're doing it, though, is they're dancing, and then they'll, like, they'll clasp hands, like, I guess, like, he'll hand over the money, she'll give him the heroin, or whatever it is, but they're tracking him the whole time, so they've got guys in there, like, trying to keep up with him, but they end up, like, they end up kind of losing him a little bit, and he doesn't end up going straight to the kidnapper's hideout. He ends up going to, um, what did they call it? It was, like, dope, didn't they call it Dope Alley? I think they called it Dope Alley or something like that. Basically, it's it's a a slum. It's or the a, uh, really... Nocturne Alley of Harry Potter. It's the Nocturne Alley of. <laughs> it's a little worse. It's a little worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> it's a little worse than that. Basically, um, this it's a it's a place where all of the drug addicts, it's a crack house, hang out. It's basically they're homeless drug addicts and just hanging out in this in this in this alley. This alleyway or these streets or whatnot. Apparently, I was I was when I was doing research and watching that making up documentary, they sent a bunch of the uh, people from uh, the crew or the who were working on the film to a real place like that to see how it looked. Um, because they I think they were initially trying to actually film there, and they they didn't end up doing it. They ended up making probably not making safe. On set. And they talked about yeah they talked about how like they had to have like a cop take them through it and how traumatized they were by it like how scared they were, uh, because what happened is when we saw it in the movie when they when someone walked in there the people just clamored towards them these desperate broken shattered people who have absolutely nothing uh, other than their drug addiction and it's another I guess uh, you know strong thematic element where you see literally people at the bottom rung of society, homeless, drug addicted, and you also see that there's no safety net for them. There's no there's no one here helping them. They are literally at the bottom. And I just thought that was very interesting. It's just it's a really depressing, depressing scene. And and so he rolls up in there and it looks like he's purposely looking for a specific person or a specific type of person. And he finds one, and he ends up, I guess, testing out the heroin on this this woman, and she overdoses and dies. I don't know whether he was doing that to make sure it would work, or whether he was doing it because he's just, you know, a garbage, terrible human being. Either way, Both. kind of the same thing. <laughs> it's kind of the same thing. Uh, so so now he's got now he's got to head to the head to the hideout. And, of course, he gets there, and he's like, hey, open up, it's me. And the cops are Damn. there, and they bust him. And he almost Bam. tries to kill no. himself. He does. He tries to take the heroin, and they and they wrestle it. And they wrestle his hand away from his face. And and they get him. And Well, I mean, they recover most of the money. It, yeah, because he spent, he spent some of it. And they bring it, and, and then I think this is the next scene where the cops go back to Gondo's place and we see that you know he's he's lost his house. Well he's he's, he's having to auction off everything. a bunch of his he's stuff and off. yeah. Yeah, all of his stuff is getting priced up for auction. So they're sitting I know they're sitting on like a couch or something and the person the auctioneer comes over and is like puts like the price tag on it and whatnot and he's like oh no you can still still use it until the auction. It's like oh okay. And even the even um the cop uh, detective says oh we too late and it's like yeah obviously too late but what is interesting though is we know none of the circumstances around gondo's financial peril 
other than the fact that he owes money. Like we didn't know if there was a deadline that he had to that he had to like get this money back. We didn't know how much money he owed specifically, where, and all that kind of stuff. But it's all kind of immaterial because all you need to know is that he he is that this you know bad stuff was going to happen to him if he paid this ransom yeah. and bad things did happen to him but he doesn't seem he doesn't he doesn't seem destroyed yeah, he, by it. i think you know his, his at least his soul is intact you know he can at least feel like he has integ- his integrity still um right yeah because there is a scene earlier on i think it's the pink the pink smoke scene where the cops are meeting with him and then his right hand man does come back in and says, "Yeah, it's a he, kind of an ass move." He comes in, he's like, "You know, you know, the executives, yeah, they're gonna let you keep, they're gonna let you keep your position. Um, you know, I fought for you, so you know, thank, basically, kiss my yeah. ass because I fought for you. I put my career on the line to save you. You know, be thankful." And Gondo's like, "Just get it, get yeah. out of here, <laughs> get out of here, you piece of trash. Go, go away. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be a puppet." For you or for for any of them, I would rather forfeit my position than do than than do that. And he's of course eventually kicked out, and then now we see him, what he's what's going what's happening yeah. to him. Uh, and the final scene of the movie is interesting to me as well, because he, the um, the the kidnapper decides that he wants to see Gondo before. I think before, like, before he's executed, or he won't see anybody else but him, or something like that, and he decides that he wants to see him. So we get this scene of also the the main the main kidnapper ends up being his name ends up being uh, Genjiro Takuchi. That's a nice name. Yeah, Takuchi. Yes, and and so he sees him, and then they have this interesting back and forth behind like this you know the fenced off thing like you see in most yeah behind the the, you know, the glass prison visitations yeah, yeah behind but there's not glass but he sits there and he basically you get you don't really get his you get his motivations but you don't really get his motivations like he for this is going to sound interesting he reminds me a lot of how um Michael Caine's Alfred described the Joker in Dark Knight. Some people just want to watch the world burn for no reason other than just to make it happen. And it seemed like to me, this is what this guy wanted to do. He wanted to ruin this guy's life just because. He didn't have any like personal ties to him. He didn't have any personal vendetta against him other than the fact that this guy lived at that house on top of that hill. And that he was looking in the, into him, like that. That was a. He's that somebody that's trying to even the playing field between the high and the low. Right. You know, he's just the, the the status quo. Somebody that's trying to you know equal the the you know level the playing field, and he's just, yeah, he's just this kind of like not an unstoppable force, obviously, but he's just just a force of uh, evil. You know, he just wanted to do bad things to to make people have pain and that's you know unfortunately uh, fortunately for the the characters he wasn't that good at it apparently so <laughs> yeah he, he he he's very confident kind of in a sociopathic yeah. way you know he doesn't he says he doesn't regret anything um he just kind of he envies uh, he he just kind of 
if anything, he he's envious of Gondo, in a way, and and it just kind of destroyed him. It's interesting how envy kind of is also a self self destructive yeah. thing as well. And what happens is his he's, he kind of freaks out. Yeah. He kind of freaks out a little bit after after a little while. And I'll say this: Gondo is stone cold stern. He's not flinching. He's not getting emotional. He's not like having like a an argumentative um, stance on anything. He's just he's just there. And even when he free, even when the kidnapper freaks out on him, he doesn't flinch. Just stands there, and then the uh, the guards pull him away. The uh, this metal gate comes down in front of him. This metal shield comes down in front of him, and that's the end of the movie. Yeah. Cheerful. Yeah, it's very, <laughs> very, yeah. I guess so. not really. I mean, there's some cheerful things. I mean, no no children died. In the sure, movie. yeah. That's kind of that's a plus. Good. That's a plus. You know. I mean, lives were ruined. It, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, maybe not ruined, but we're definitely. Uh, were disrupted. <laughs> I don't know if Gonzo's yeah, life is necessarily that. over. Like he's gonna be. You know. No, no. We did learn that he he's he works at a new company now, and and he he makes less money, but he's happier, yeah. I guess. And he wants to now build that company up to be a rival to the other company that he used to work yeah. for. So if anything, he's finding perhaps a, new a second wind passion in life. Um, but yeah, I mean it's. You know, as I, you know, talking about it and rewatching this movie, it, it it feels like you know, it, you know, and there's a lot of movies about class disparage and you know, uh, but you know, more recent film uh, Parasite would be a great double feature with this. Oh yeah, you know, a Korean film, so it's got you know, uh, some same vibes, um, but it's it's got that class structure and it's got some, you know, it's got some edge to it, and I think it, you know. Watch this with Parasite. I think you'll you'll enjoy that. Um, oh yeah, it, the, the same themes of like classism and all that kind of stuff are are in that as well as they are here. If anything, that film is more you know obviously modern. It came out last year, but they're still saying the same things. Yeah, I mean it's it's still talking about like you said the classism, uh, but it, and it, but it's I think in Parasite you're 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 getting a, maybe a little bit more of a uh, it's it's obviously I think it's more obvious. It's a more direct than, uh comparison right. between the high the, the, the upper and, and lower class, but um, Yeah. That seems to be the driving force of the plot of that yeah. movie versus I would say high and low where it just happens to be a a consequence of the actions that are happening within yeah. the plot. You know what I mean? Because the plot of High and Low is, like we said, it's a ransom movie. It's a, a little more story driven and Parasite's a little bit more thematically driven. Um yeah. Right, but I mean, it's it, they're pretty, they're, they're you know they're a good little pair, pretty damn good yeah. movies. And um, yeah. but yeah, I mean, guys, don't take the don't take our word for it. Just check it out yourselves. Uh, High and Low is, I would say, one of my favorite Kurosawa films. Um, oh yeah, I think it's top five. It's I definitely it's, top five. <laughs> I would say it's a top five Kurosawa. I Come on, man, you know I it is. You have to look at it. I, I gotta because it's like, uh, well, you know what? Uh, yeah, maybe. I've, if it's top five, it's maybe it's, it is number five. I may, I mean, because I I'm thinking like Seven Samurai. Um, oh man, I don't know if it's top five. Seven Samurai. You know how much I love Akira. I know you do. Uh, Ran 
is really amazing. Rashomon is also really amazing. Yeah, so I, yeah, Desperate Zay top five. That makes sense. I don't know. I, I'd have to go. It's like, tough. He's got so like many good all. movies. Um, he yeah, does. It's, it's tough, but I'm sure we'll get back around to Kurosawa again at some point uh, on another spotlight or maybe an episode dedicated to him. Uh, maybe we can go over some of his lesser known uh, films or something. You know, um, that'd be kind of yeah. cool. Um, but. I think that's going to do it for this episode of the Cinema Discovery Project. Where can we find you, Andrew? You can find me on Twitter at Capzilla06, as well as my YouTube channel, Capzilla Productions. And you can find me on Facebook, Stephen Billings. You can find the audio for this podcast on Podbean and Apple Podcasts. Thank you for listening, and hey, keep on watching them movies. I know I will. <laughs>